Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist and a writer, and I work in the publications department at ASCP. And my name is Dr. Dan Milner, and I'm the chief medical officer of ASCP and also one of your hosts. So today we're going to be talking about death certificates, and we've got some great guests lined up, so I'm going to let them introduce themselves. I'm Dr. Wendy Levesi. I'm the Deputy Chief Medical Examiner of the District 5 and 24 Medical Examiner's Offices in Leesburg, Florida, just outside of Orlando. I've been here for 13 years and in pathology since 1999 and forensics 2004. I'm Bobby Federa. I'm a pathologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. I direct the autopsy service. I've been a pathologist at the Brigham now for 20 years, including training. And I think I'm the only one on the panel without any forensics, direct forensics experience. So I'm interested to, to learn a lot from everyone else on the panel. I am Dr. Janae Taylor. I am a deputy medical examiner for the District of Columbia in Washington. And I recently joined that office just about two years ago. Before that, I'd done my fellowship in New York. and an autopsy project as well in Uganda. Hi everyone, uh, Alex Williamson. I'm a pathologist at Northwell Health on Long Island. I've been here uh, just coming up on a decade, time sure flies. I'm chief of autopsy pathology and I run our regional autopsy service. I'm also a pediatric pathologist and I'm a per diem medical examiner in New York State. Awesome, you guys, thanks so much for joining us. Before we get started on our questions, I just have a little bit of CME housekeeping to get out of the way. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit, and physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. All right. Well, yeah, thanks again for joining us, guys. Back whenever I was in high school in the early 90s, I used to be a, a big true, true crime geek, and I was going to actually become a forensic pathologist, and then I realized how, how much medical school cost and changed my trajectory a little bit. I really just kind of want to start off the conversation really broadly. Who can legally certify a death and what do these folks need to know in order to certify a death without an autopsy? Anyone can answer. Anyone can start off. Well, here in Florida, medical doctors and now nurse practitioners as of a couple of weeks ago can certify deaths legally here in Florida. I stress to them when I'm talking to them that the death certificate is a prima facie document. That means you certify to the best of your knowledge of that patient. So the person that best knows that patient can certify the death unless the death is due to unnatural circumstances, and in which case the death has to be certified by a medical examiner. Are there thoughts about that? Are there, any, are there state differences? I know Wendy just mentioned that nurse practitioners now can do that in Florida. Is that something that you see in, in D.C. or in New York? In D.C., we only see medical doctors. I've seen, you know, not all of the cases, obviously not all of the cases that are certified are certified by medical examiners because some are natural deaths 
And the reason that I know that is because we also certify, medical examiners have to certify cremations, but I have not seen um, nurse practitioners certify the deaths. It's very, very recent here in Florida. And Alex, New York? I just say at New York State, similar experience, pretty much a licensed health professional, MD, DO, nurse practitioner, some registered nurses in certain settings, including hospice. But again, the theme is a certified medical professional is legally entitled in most places, I think, to certify a death due to natural causes. And that's basically when death is 100% explained by disease. There's no injury or trauma, no toxic exposure like carbon monoxide or medication overdose, et cetera. Yeah. And I, th- and I think that one thing that's important for the audience to know, if they don't know, many people probably do know this, but it's not necessarily common knowledge, is that the reasons that someone goes to the medical examiner are actually different state by state, even though there are some general concepts that you guys talked about, about, you know, obviously homicides or suicides or that sort of stuff. Each state has its own list of why things go to the medical examiner. And I think we'll get into that a little bit later when we start talking about COVID. But we do have uh, Dr. Padera on, along with our uh, hybrid, Dr. Williamson, who's done both. So we really want to make sure the audience is clear on what the difference is between a medical autopsy pathologist and a forensic autopsy pathologist. And also, when do they work together? Can you start that also on that for Dr. Padera? Sure. So I think, well, one is, um, you know, in terms of the, the training, there are similarities and then differences. So the, the similarities are that, you know, we've all trained in anatomic pathology, gone through an anatomic pathology residency, and then forensic pathologists, the, you know, everyone else on, on the call here has done additional specialized training within forensics. What I did and what most autopsy pathologists do is do kind of an internal hospital uh, fellowship or experience dedicated to autopsy pathology and the types of questions that we ask and answer uh, surrounding medical autopsies are kind of a subset of what uh, the forensic pathologists do in their day-to-day work. There's a lot of overlap, but there's, uh, you know, there's some real differences there that in the forensics world, they have a lot of expertise that we just don't have, you know, in the hospital setting. In terms of how we work together from the kind of from the medical perspective, I think it's it's really a two-way street. There are situations where a medical examiner for kind of for my expertise, they've reached out. I happen to do cardiac and pulmonary pathology. I'm an engineer by training, so I've done a lot of medical device work. So sometimes they'll contact me if they have an unusual medical device or something that they haven't seen before, uh, just to show me to, to get my opinion on it. And, you know, also I do congenital heart disease pathology. So there are some situations where the forensic pathologists certainly have the expertise to you know, delve deeply into, um, you know, into the anatomy of, of what's gone wrong, but just with their other, the other burdens that they have in terms of time, that, that might be a specialized dissection that's better done in an academic setting with someone who has a little more time to, to delve into it. And then the flip side, we, you know, kind of we reach out to our forensic pathology colleagues. If, if I'm in the process of doing an autopsy, and it becomes clear during the process that the death is not 100% natural, that there was some other, something else has happened that was unexpected. And generally then I'll stop and you know call my, uh, my colleagues in the medical examiner's office, let them know what happened, and then allow them to kind of weigh in on what I should do or what should be done next appropriately. Yeah. Thanks for saying that, Bobby, about the 
the the communication between the two because I I remember when we were together at the Brigham that horrible feeling of getting halfway through or part way through an autopsy and being like, ugh, I really think I need to call the medical examiner, but it's a good thing. It, it's there to protect the doctors in the hospital. It's there to protect the patient. It's all about risk management and making sure that the right thing is done for the patient. So I, I never thought it was a bad thing, but it always makes you a little sink. Your stomach sink just a little bit because you don't want to have messed up what the medical examiners need to do for that patient. For the forensic peeps on the call or on the podcast, what do you do in your day-to-day, just in follow-up to what Bobby was saying, what do you do in your day-to-day that, that autopsy pathologists in a hospital never have to do? What are some of those things? Retrieve bullets. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big one. So we're often dealing with cases that are unnatural. So we're dealing with accidents, homicides, suicide, documenting injuries from car accidents or other kind of accidental deaths to mechanisms associated with suicides and homicides and retrieving evidence and collecting evidence and working closely with police in those types of cases. So that's probably the big difference. We do get a subset of natural deaths because they don't have a doctor and they've not been to a hospital and they don't have anyone to sign their death certificate and they don't have a medical history and they're young. So we really need to autopsy them to assign a cause of death. So we do have that subset. And because they've not seen a doctor, they're often very interesting cases because they have things that have gone on for quite some time without medical attention. And so they can be interesting uh, from a pathology point of view. I am not in an academic setting anymore, um, nor are we affiliated with the university. So I don't have residents and medical students in this position now. But I do work with two different trauma teams in our, we have a fairly large district in Florida, Central Florida. So we have two level two trauma centers and we take their patients for autopsy, their trauma team. And it's interesting that their focus in wanting to know what happened is different than our focus in determining the cause of death. And so that's probably the biggest difference in a hospital autopsy is I found when I was doing hospital autopsies, where we were a lot more focused on the different mechanisms of how someone died and not just the big forest. So more focused on trees and forensic pathologists are more focused on the forest. What's the big thing that happened here? So that's probably the biggest difference, I think. And I was fishing a little bit to see if you would say having to go to court you didn't. You forgot about that. But can you just, Jonay or or Alice, did you elaborate on how much time maybe Jonay you you do now? How much time do you spend in court versus in the forensic setting? So I would have to say that that can be jurisdiction dependent. As a fellow in New York, I spent two years doing first a forensic pathology fellowship and then neuropath and cardiology fellowship. I think it's just, you know, a matter of really how the law enforcement kind of works the case. I definitely saw, you know, about 50 homicides. It was limited because I was in a fellowship and I went to court about 10 times and they were pretty efficient in terms of like, you know, when you get there, you kind of, you know, you go on the stand. As opposed to Washington, D.C. or the District of Columbia, where I've been here nearly two years as a junior attending, um, and I've not yet been to court, but ironically, I've definitely had probably two to three times as much homicides here in D.C. So, you know, that's been my experience. Alex? 
I just wanted to add uh, one important theme, I think, that I kind of uh, benefit from, if you will, the way I've engineered kind of my practice is I straddle the world of hospital and forensic autopsy. I kind of view it under the umbrella of one large A. I think it's important in our education and our collegial relationships and our education to really work together. Forensic pathology can inform autopsy pathology in the hospital and vice versa. For example, in the hospital setting, when we encounter a pulmonary embolism, we tend to stop in the lungs, if you will. That's adequate from most medical perspectives. However, it's really not sufficient for a complete workup. So in the forensic world, when we find a pulmonary embolism or a blood clot in the lungs, we then go search for the origin of that clot, usually in the deep leg veins, through additional special dissection. And then the underlying cause of death in that case is the underlying cause of the blood clot that traveled to the lungs. So being a forensic person, kind of, I bring that practice in our hospital service. And so we, whenever we have a pulmonary embolism, we actually go do deep leg vein dissections to find the source. Conversely, as a medical examiner, having a working knowledge of what clinical medicine is still important can really inform one's practice. For example, if a a dead child uh, is diagnosed with a cardiomyopathy, um, unfortunately, sometimes forensic pathologists will stop, if you will, to borrow a term at the forest and call it a cardiomyopathy, but give no important information that will benefit the family. For example, is it hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Is it Bannon disease? Those diagnoses need to be taken to their full extent in order to best serve the family through that death, that tragic death of a child. And so I think if we as a community of pathologists kind of share our knowledge and our experience, I think that then allows an autopsy practice that benefits everybody, whether you encounter us through the legal realm of the forensic pathologist or you encounter us as a hospital-based autopsy pathologist, we are giving our best professional effort to everybody. And I think that cross-pollination, if you will, across the artificial delineation at times of forensic hospital is important to bear in mind. Wendy? I think that um, in a follow-up to that, Alex, one of the limiting factors in forensic offices in many, many jurisdictions is the lack of funding to do those extra tests, to follow up with any kind of genetics that hospitals often have access to. So I've had to then reach out, like you said, to a hospital or to an organization that can help a family with the funding for that because we don't have it. We work for the government and we work for our citizens and, and we're most offices are not funded to do those kind of follow-ups. We don't even have immunohistochemistry. All we have are special stains. So if I need anything more than special stains, I need to find a a hospital pathologist willing to to work with us. So yes, that's a limitation too. So since we're on the topic of the differences sort of between the forensic pathology and the hospital autopsies, can you kind of tell me what kind of differences that you guys have in your practices in terms of the death certificate? Like how, how are your different practices, those differences reflected in the death certificate? Well, that was going to be my question to Alex, actually. And when you're doing a medical autopsy, then are you certifying the death with that mechanism without the underlying disease process often? I'm just curious to that. Yeah, so uh, as part of our um, autopsy protocol, kind of following uh, the CAP, College of American Pathologist Guidelines, we issue our autopsy reports include a correct uh, medical legal statement of the cause of death, the cause of death statement. Now, what we're struggling with and what I'm trying to work on in Northwell Health is translating those autopsy clarified or confirmed or established cause of death statements and amending what is often an incorrect clinical death certificate. 
So I think one of the benefits back to the forensic pathology training that I found, I view it as the fellowship and death certification. It's really the only formal training any medical professional gets anywhere in our system as it exists now. I think that's unfortunate, but essentially you have to go to forensic pathology fellowship to learn how to certify a death. And that kind of highlights the other problem that I think we're starting to address here as well. Throughout medicine, most people don't know how to fill out a death certificate. It really is the purvey of the forensic pathologist who has received specialized training in how to do it and does it on a daily practice. I benefit from bringing that experience into our hospital service. So our cause of death statements are complete, including pulmonary embolism due to thrombosis of deep leg vein due to or maybe contributing pregnancy, obesity, et cetera. Whereas a typical hospital or a clinician signed death certificate may just stop at pulmonary embolism. Right. We're finding the same thing. When I first came here, I spent a lot of time going hospital to hospital and lecturing on how to fill out a death certificate, most often having nursing audiences because physicians often feel that they already know how to do that. So I didn't often have a lot of physician participation. I was able to get in front of the Florida Medical Association a couple of times and sort of where where they're already getting their required Florida CMEs and they were sort of a captive audience. And I got an hour with them and there are jaws that are dropping in the audience because they're like, oh, really? I didn't know that that's how you fill out a death certificate because they're never trained. And it really is not that complicated, but they're just never trained. We can take from what you're saying that clearly there is a specific way to fill out a death certificate. It's not something haphazard or random that we just learn from medical school because we happen to be physicians. There's actually a process and an educational pathway to understand how to do that correctly. And Alex's comment is that currently forensic pathologists get that training formally unless, and other people would only have it if they go through something as Wendy described. Bobby or Johnny, do you have any experience around either teaching people or issues around death certification, especially around the medical autopsy, Bobby, where there was clearly a problem, for example, as Wendy described or Alex described with the inappropriately filled out death certificate that you wanted to correct, or, or is there a process to do that? Yeah, so we, in, in terms of, of pathology, we, and I've, I've learned from Dr. Williamson and others how to, you know, at least how to do this as best I can. So we do kind of what Alex does as well, is try to come up with a complete cause of death. And our the process in our hospital is that after we perform an autopsy, we basically reach the death certificate back to the hospital admitting office with the information from the autopsy. So I think in our autopsy cases that we performed uh, an anatomical dissection, we do pretty well. And in, in terms of, you know, kind of lecturing and, and teaching, I teach our pathology residents, certainly, and, and we're starting to kind of reach out to the, the medical community within the hospital, the medical and surgical community. There's quite often, and, and I think we'll, we'll probably get to later, kind of the, the difference between mechanism, which I think a lot of the clinicians end up filling out, you know, cardiorespiratory arrest due to something, and, and you don't get to a, you know, a competent cause of death until, you know, the fourth or fifth line, and it's, it's quite a path which is a logical path thinking like a clinician, but it's not correct in terms of how to fill out a death certificate. They're really different. They're complementary skills, but they're, they're different skills. Jonay, did you have a comment? Yeah. So as, you know, a deputy medical examiner in DC, uh, we are affiliated with George Washington, Georgetown and Howard University. And we get pathology residents 
through our office. And so I try to explain to them how it's properly done. I have seen non-pathologists fill out the death certificate. And what I've seen most commonly is people trying in part one, it's it's really just one etiology, one cause. And I've seen, you know, the need to put several during, you know, as I'm signing cremations. And I think that's a big thing. You know, we do have a part two, you know, there's part one, which is you know, the immediate cause. And then we have contributory in part two. You know, if you say it's hypertensive and atherosclerotic in the first part, you can put diabetes, you can put the end stage renal in the second part. But I see often people trying to just put everything in part one. So I am teaching at least the pathology residents who come through and any medical students, when we're going through the autopsy, I ask them how they would certify the case, how I would sign the case. And that's a, that's a great segue to actually something that, that Kelly and I definitely want you guys to talk about. So as you've all said, you've said many terms. Uh, we didn't let you define those. You just mentioned them. So there are many terms uh, related to death certification. And those, those may be confusing for people. We've seen that happen over the last year uh, with COVID and the lay press for sure. So what we really wanted to do is have you walk us through some of these terms, um, especially as it, as it relates to death certification. So specifically, you know, what do you mean by cause, mechanism, and manner of death as it relates to a death certificate process? Because I think those are the three most common terms that we hear. But what, what do those exactly mean? Well, as far as cause of death, the cause of death is the injury or the disease or the combination of those things that ultimately led to the death. And that may be an immediate cause of death or prolonged cause of death. So that's where I think a lot of clinicians get lost. A mechanism is sort of the final common pathway of what can happen because of many causes of death. So when I teach this, I try to teach it as, you know, think of a line of dominoes. When you line up dominoes and you hit the first one over, that's the cause of death. The last domino might be the mechanism. And there might be a lot of dominoes in between or one domino. So if you have cardiac disease and you have a heart attack and die and there's, that's it, very sudden, that's a straightforward cause of death. If you dive off a cliff when you're 15 years old and break your neck and are quadriplegic and die 30 years later of complications of being a quadriplegic, then your cause of death is related to that cliff diving accident. And that's where people get lost in the, in the shuffle when a lot of different mechanisms happen. So bed sores and pneumonias and things that can happen to people that have quadriplegia are mechanisms. The reason mechanisms don't stand alone well is because the Department of Vital Statistics needs to know why did they have bed sores? Why did they have pneumonia? Those are things that research monies can be allocated towards to prevent. It's hard to prevent those mechanisms without knowing what's causing them. So that's why this is so important to get right. The manner of death is a little simpler. Well, it depends on how you look at it. It's either natural, accident, homicide, suicide, undetermined if we can't tell. And in some jurisdictions, there are um, medical therapeutic manners of death. We don't have that in Florida, but those tell the circumstances of the death. So in other words, you can have a gunshot wound of the head that can be accidental, suicidal, or homicidal. So that kind of elucidates the manner of death is the circumstances under which the cause occurred. And then with related to that, anyone else have any comments about, about that as far as, like, as especially jurisdictional differences? As I said, I did my fellowship in New York and we did have the therapeutic complications, which is generally not seen 
elsewhere, but it is listed in the textbooks. Now that could be anywhere from, you know, usually if someone has complications because of a procedure that went on and they died because, you know, the procedure happened, that's usually a result of a, you know, therapeutic complication. Alex? I would just say uh, kind of a general theme I find helpful is when I'm talking to people about cause of death, the underlying cause of death is really a public health notification. It's what is killing people. So is it coronary artery atherosclerosis? Is it diabetes mellitus? Is it motor vehicle accidents uh, among 15-year-olds? What is the underlying cause of death for that population? That informs all public health decisions, funding, government mandates, government programming, et cetera. Death certificates also include information like, did tobacco use contribute, yes or no? And a lot, probably everyone's aware of the role of smoking in, uh, as a risk factor for various diseases. So all of that information, whenever you watch a commercial or hear about, you know, Alzheimer's affects this many million people, that's all based on death certification data and specifically the underlying cause of death. So that's very important to understand. The underlying cause of death is vital to get correct because that shapes our understanding of what is killing us. Right. A mechanism or the immediate cause of death, I uh, like the domino uh, analogy, that can become important to understand how are those underlying causes killing people. And as an example, in the hospice community, we tend to assume that someone in hospice, well, they are, they're, they're terminal, they're going to die. It's recognized. There's a wonderful study out of Johns Hopkins uh, where they looked at cause of death statements for hospice. And you know, let's, for example, take someone with cancer, end-stage metastatic breast cancer. They're going to die of uh, breast cancer. But how they're dying shapes the palliation at the end of their life. With cancer, for example, you can die from a tumor eroding into a vessel and you can hemorrhage. You can uh, suppress your immune system and die of pneumonia. You can also get very low platelets and, and bleed into your lungs and your GI tract. Uh, how people die with cancer is as important as the fact they're dying of, with the cancer because that can shape how we manage people with, let's say, stage four terminal breast cancer. Do we need to address their immune deficiency? Do we need to make sure they have adequate platelets so they can clot appropriately, et cetera? So the underlying cause of death is very important from a global public health perspective. All of us are impacted by that. And the mechanism of death can be very important to inform how those diseases actually kill people so we can make that as kind as possible. Die with dignity. It feeds into that discussion. Bobby, did you have a comment? Uh, I was actually going to gonna kind of play off of what Jonay had mentioned about the therapeutic complications. And I think we see that quite a bit. We may see that more in the hospital autopsy setting than in the forensic autopsy setting where, you know, especially any new therapeutic or new, you know, kind of new drug, new medication, new procedure that's coming out we may end up seeing in, in the hospital. So the the common one that I've I've seen lately are the you know immune checkpoint inhibitor therapies for cancer leading to myocarditis or leading to other autoimmune type type processes that then uh, result in the death of the patient. And I think it's it's nice to kind of have that umbrella of therapeutic complication. Not that anyone did anything wrong, but that you know there's no such thing as a free lunch when it comes to any of these therapeutics or side effects really to all of them. And I think the the autopsy is really important in bringing these things out, as as Alex was saying about thinking about what are some issues that we can address research. And I think the autopsy and and continuing to do both medical and forensic autopsies is so important in moving, you know, science and medicine forward in in all aspects. I want to delve a little bit deeper into this. Let's let's dig further in the, into the weeds with regard to the cause of death. 
folks use terms like primary cause or secondary cause or the antecedent cause? How does that relate to what we've been talking about for like cause of death, manner, mechanism, that sort of thing? Can you guys elaborate on that? And maybe give us some examples. Ooh, examples. I like Donate, examples. The most timely one is COVID. You know, you have a person who has heart disease, they might have diabetes, and they're kind of limping along. They're not at optimal health. And then, you know, this intersecting event happens whereby they get infected with COVID and that's the end of it. You know, they just, they can't sustain that level that they were at, which was limping along, right? So in that case, I would definitely put part one, because there's a part one and a part two on the death certificate, I would definitely put COVID. Now, CDC had come out with these guidelines for certification for COVID, which were used heavily in my office, being the cause of death is acute respiratory distress syndrome due to pneumonia, due to COVID-19 infection. Um, now we've shifted a bit and we're saying, you know, complications of COVID-19 infection, etc. Part two for this, you know, example that I'm giving you. So all the contributing factors that would be hypertensive and athero or arteriosclerotic cardiovascular disease. That would be your diabetes. That would be your chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. All of those contributed because, you know, the person already was at suboptimal, but the hit of COVID was just too much and took the person down. That is an idea of how we kind of order our thoughts, I think, in, in forensic pathology, how I at least was trained to do so. And all of these, the mechanism would be natural. Now, if you had someone who had, for example, a fall at home and broke their neck, that's different because they would be more blunt force trauma of neck in part one or complications of blunt force trauma of neck. And then in part two, you might put the heart disease, etc. That would be my example of how I would kind of align just all of the you know, medical history of someone. That would be an accident, probably. Yeah. Like I said, man would be an accident, yeah. I think that's a very helpful example, considering what's been happening. Do other people have other examples where, especially ones that maybe were controversial or you had some some negative feedback about when you put them in using these different terms of primary and secondary, especially recently? Alex? Well, I think that also, whenever you have different terms for the same thing, it's like the Tower of Babel, that propagates the inability of any of us to speak the same language when it comes to death certification. So I think we need to do away with non those terms and accept what the CDC has a guidebook, for example, for certifying deaths. We in this profession, and I think all physicians need to come to one word means one thing. So immediate, intermediate, and underlying cause of death should be the only terms we're using. So I would encourage us in our efforts abroad to really focus people back on the relevant terms that are referenced among commonly or easily accessible references. So again, immediate, intermediate, underlying is the best way to frame these. And I think that's that can counter some of that confusion. But I believe in general, the primary usually means what's the main problem or underlying, and then secondary can mean either intermediate or immediate. But again, I encourage everybody to use the commonly accepted terminology. I think we should always emphasize that. And have 
name or is part of ISO accreditation or the International Association of Coroners and Medical Examiners, have any of those adopted a different system or do they, do they suggest that you also use the CDC? Is there, is there standardization in the practice right now? I believe that we're all using the CDC guidelines when it came to certifying COVID deaths. And I agree with Alex. Uh, we use part one as the immediate and underlying cause of death. Part two as any contributing conditions. I haven't even heard of antecedent. I've never even used that term or heard of it. So I agree that if we're starting to use different terms for the same things, it's more confusing for everybody. Yeah, Dr. Padera may want to comment. We, we on our death certificates in Massachusetts, antecedent cause was there. I don't know if it's still there, Bobby, but what does that mean? Was that the state document or is that a hospital wording? That I think is is a hospital wording, but I'm not entirely. I haven't seen death certificates, a lot of death certificates from other places. So, but there are many things that we're in the process of re-reviewing with regard to that particular document. But I think the the functionality of it is is just as you described. And the question that I was kind of raising my hand to ask, which Alex, you answered, is you know, does anyone actually use those terms anymore in a medical, you know, primary and secondary? and antecedent in a medical situation, or is this, you know, something maybe left over from bygone days that's in the in the popular press, if not exclusively, predominantly? And it, it sounds like that it's um, among, among at least the cognoscenti, not so many people use it. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I think Alex is very helpful to clarify that there is a CDC statement and, and guideline about that, and that's what people should try to look for and understand when they're trying to read the lay press to make sure that they understand what is the story actually trying to say, because they're not using the right language based on what, you know, we're told they should be using. Um, I want to change directions just a little bit and just bring it back to, you know, the whole concept of, of autopsy. So autopsy rates have been on the decline since the 1980s uh, in general, and this is more rapidly declining with recent legislation uh, changes which are related to things like requirements for accreditation or funding or, you know, how to do that. And then we obviously all have witnessed what happened in 2020 with all the COVID deaths and the upswing that needed to happen because of example, jurisdictions having laws that said anyone in a public health emergency has to have a, a forensic autopsy, even though that's supposed to be for unknown, it was being used for even known cases. So it was a bit of a challenge. So forensic pathologists are in short supply nationally. I don't think anybody would argue that. But forensic death investigation is still crucial to the justice system. We have to have it. It's not something we can do without. So what are your thoughts or suggestions on how we can actually improve these current challenges of you know, declining autopsy, not enough forensic pathologists? What are some ways that we could approach that to solve that problem? And I'll open this up to anyone. I think part of the problem with forensic pathology is that Probably nationwide, forensic pathologists don't make the same salaries as surgical pathologists. So it's considered a, a subspecialty that's maybe, quote unquote, not as important as surgical pathology because surgical pathologists are dealing with living people. And there's sort of a, an attitude that that's more important than determining why someone died, which obviously could help other living people later. But that's sort of just been traditionally the way. So uh, we talk about this in forensic pathology a lot about um, raising the salary of forensic pathologists to meet that of surgical pathologists and possibly recruiting people. The other part is our 
surgical pathology are very, very different in that we deal with the public. We speak to families all the time. We go to court, we testify, we talk to lawyers, we give depositions. We're constantly dealing with people. We're constantly giving people bad news. And a lot of surgical pathologists deal with other physicians so that are going to deliver that news. So they're not necessarily people that have to talk to families or have to deal with people that are crying and 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 things like that. So it, it can be unattractive to people to have to do that. Um, I think testifying in court can stop people in their tracks. And in fact, some people go into forensic pathology not realizing how challenging that is. And they don't last in forensic pathology because they don't like it. So those are some challenges. And sometimes the day just doesn't smell very good. And that gets to people too. You know, we deal with some unpleasantries, whether it's at a scene and cockroaches all over the place or a decomposed body, we have some very unpleasant physical environmental things that we deal with that might not appeal to people. So we do have some challenges. To put some numbers on that, just so we're all on the same page, the average salary of a forensic pathologist in the United States is about $100,000. And the average salary of a general pathologist is about $200,000. So we're talking about you know, it's half the salary. And when you look at graduation from medical school, the average student now graduates with a debt of about $250,000 US dollars. And so if your options are the $200,000 or the $100,000 job with no other considerations, it, it's very difficult for that, that to right. win out. I would put in a small plug for George Mason University, ASCP, the National Associations of Attorney General, and the Montana Medical Examiner's Office, who have recently received a grant for the National Center on Forensics, which is specifically to address this exact problem. How do we get more people to go into forensic pathology? And so I think this podcast is one example of how we will be reaching out to the community. But the important thing is to say, you know, we know, we all know what the same, we all have the same idea what the problem is, how do we fix it, you know, and, and things like, for example, loan repayment programs, are those an option, right. but local or nationally based? Pathologist assistants doing specialized fellowships to be able to do some of the work of the forensic pathologists to help them in their offices have been shown to help. So there's the question of the workforce we need to do the forensic pathology work. And then there's the question of getting more people to be forensic pathologists, right? And those are, they're, they're two different problems, but I think that they have multiple solutions. And so I think we can all, can all work together to try to figure those out. Is there, I want to jump in here. I, I want to ask the question, do you guys think that I don't want to call it moral injury necessarily, but just the emotional and psychological toll of dealing with, as you were saying, uh, Wendy, kind of unpleasant deaths sometimes, especially in the forensic pathology arena. Do you think that that's a factor that keeps people from the um, profession? Um, I think it's the same as someone who works in an emergency room and has to deal with those unpleasantries and violence and and things, you know, I think any of the professions that I think surgeons that lose patients are going through that same kind of trauma. So I, I think that's a minor part of it. Any physicians that lose their patients are traumatized by that. So, Jenny, did you have a comment about that? Yeah, I mean, it was very similar to Wendy's comment about, you know, I get asked that so much as a forensic pathologist. Like, how do you deal with death? And I don't think that the risk going into medicine as a physician in general, there's always a risk of losing a patient. There's always a risk of death. We know it. So, you know, maybe the fact that death is so palpable as a forensic pathologist, we see people die every day. You know, I really, I don't see it as contributing as much. Yeah, Alex? 
I just say I, I appreciate what my colleagues are all saying, and I kind of have always thought about it. The realm of postmortem care, which encompasses both hospital and forensic pathology, ironically, I think as a physician, it's the most rewarding practice of medicine one can have. Um, you get to deal, as Wendy pointed out, with people uh, in their worst moment of life. You're the community physician, as my mentor, Dr. Hirsch, uh, used to talk to us about. You get uninterrupted time with patients without insurance companies saying you have to see X patients per hour. Um, you get to use your mind. You get to solve puzzles. You get to interact with police and lawyers and get to educate the public. You get to contribute to vital death. I mean, I'm, I just think it's the best thing in medicine. And I've always struggled with why is that not translating over to medical trainees? Because if you want to be a true physician caring for a patient, I can't think of a better practice in today's medical environment than being an autopsy pathologist if you do it well. I think in pathology, we kind of struggle with a lot of people like to go into the uh, obscurity, hiding in a basement office with air tubes over you and never <laughs> seeing people. That attracts some people, and we need them to be committing their mind to making diagnoses. But I think for a forensic and hospital-based pathology, autopsy pathology really draws on people that are true physicians. And so how do we get that to capture medical students? Uh, one thing I've found helpful, I also teach at the Zucker School of Medicine and uh, two things I've done over there, which I think I hope are having an impact. And from what I've heard over the 10 years I've been here have, I'm in the laboratory and their classroom starting on day one of medical school. When they're meeting their cadaver, I'm their forensic pathologist to guide them through that memorable day. I think that's something that all pathologists can engage with as their circumstances allow. I've also introduced a introduction to death certification course into their transition training from second to third year when they hit the wards in the classic medical school model. There's a forensic pathologist talking to them about the importance of autopsy, the importance of death certification, where to go when you need help. You know, put that right alongside how to run an ACLS code, how to deliver a baby all the other things that they view as real doctor stuff. If we have forensic pathologists talking about autopsy and death certification and talking to families and medical examiners, that then makes it real medicine. So I think we as pathologists can do more. And I think those of us on this podcast are engaged in that fight, but we need to keep fighting for our rightful place alongside our colleagues. Mindy? I couldn't agree with that more. It's definitely been a fight over here. I've had a lot of trouble trying to get myself into the medical schools to help with the curriculum. It's just, I've been told we just don't have time for that. And it's it's so discouraging, just like Alex said. Uh, and I'm quite entertaining when I lecture. So I know if they let me in the door, it, you know, it won't stop. And I could convince people to do this. It is a great career. It is. I've had family members that wanted me to be their physician after talking to them. And it's like, well, you don't really want me to be your physician. <laughs> yep, I, I can't get you until you're dead. Sorry. <laughs> I, I think we've definitely come upon one solution to solving this problem, which is to bottle the enthusiasm and the excitement of you guys and, and make people drink that. And I think people would. Yeah, we just need to make this enthusiasm elixir. And I really do what something Alex said really touched, like really hit home for me was like you're, you know, this is a community physician position, whether or not you're in a really big institution or you work for the state or you do work for a smaller, more rural county. It's yeah, you're really a community physician. And I think that's an important aspect to get across to med students. 
All right. I'm going to, I'm going to circle back a little bit because as with pretty much every single one of our podcasts that we've done, we can't talk about anything without talking about COVID-19 because it's the pandemic obviously has does just touched all parts of our lives, but obviously it's had an impact on, on you guys' work in the past year. So what are some of the, can you guys talk about some of the challenges that you faced in the past year for the death certification process during the pandemic? In Florida, any case that is a public health emergency has to be certified by the medical examiner. So we were very quickly overwhelmed with death certification. Even though the clinician taking care of the patient knew exactly why they died, we would have to take jurisdiction of the case, get the medical records, read exactly what they already knew, and certify the death. So that took up the time of our investigators. It took the pathologist time to do exactly what the clinician could do. So we did that for several months, and it became really, really taxing on the on the medical community, the forensic community in Florida. You can imagine the amount of deaths in Miami-Dade County, and they mm-hmm. just didn't have the, the manpower to, to keep up with the death certification program. You're delaying people being buried. You're delaying the family's you know, insurance benefits. You're delaying all kinds of things when you can't get that death certification out as quickly as possible. So there is a little clause in the Florida statutes anyway, that says we have to certify deaths in a public health emergency at the request of the health department. So the health department finally, after several months said, okay, we don't need you to do it anymore. So it wasn't an immediate pandemic anymore once once things got underway. So probably in July of last year, we relinquished having to do all of them back to the clinicians. And so that's how it got handled in Florida. And, and, I, and I think that's a really important point, Wendy, is that state by state have that, that line about whether or not you have to do an autopsy for a COVID patient is dependent on a statute or, or a law that was not written thinking about a pandemic, right? It, it was like, oh, you know, there's a white powder and an envelope. We need to have the medical examiner involved to do that. But when everyone in the hospital is dying of the same thing, it's no longer a public health unknown threat. It's a very real known threat. And so you have to make that decision as, as, as Florida did to say, yes, this is enough. We, we now know that if you have a positive test, you can do that. But many states, as, as with Florida, didn't have that luxury and had to do these cases for months and months and months when it was obvious you know, that the threat is now known and we know what to do about the threat. Why are we continuing to have to do all of these, all these cases? Other examples from the other groups, other people? We were never required to autopsy all of them. Right. Had we been, that would have been another layer of difficulty. You'd so, still be in the autopsy suite and you wouldn't be able to be in the podcast with us. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I don't know what happened in other states, but we were never required to autopsy all of them. We just had to take jurisdiction of them. Sure. Jonay? One of the odd challenges I faced in D.C. and and other you know international centers is when the decedent is of another country and the family wants to send them back, it's interesting how, you know, even if we know, like I had a mom die after childbirth and we knew it was COVID, she was COVID negative, but she was going to Trinidad and um, the country would not take her unless we had like final, you know, sometimes we, 
do a, ten, a temporary death certificate because we need to get more information such as histology, such as toxicology. So she was pending, but Trinidad Ministry of Health would not take her because she had a pending death certificate, even though I signed a letter saying this woman has, you know, is not COVID, we're not concerned about it. They wanted the final. And I've seen that in a couple of other cases of people going to Central America or, you know, Bobby, yeah, I had I had um, in Massachusetts, I think a little different experience, and and with the the hospital autopsy experience, I don't I don't think there was such a statute in Massachusetts, or or if there was, I did a lot of illegal autopsies because we were kind of early, and I think Alex had the same, you know, in in Boston with that, you know, kind of with our meeting at the end of February that turned out to be a, a super spreader event. We got hit very hard early in the in the course of of COVID. And so we were doing a lot of autopsies, you know, in the April timeframe. And I, I couldn't imagine having an, you know, a medical examiner forensic responsibility for those cases, just the number of them. So it was, I think, Wendy, as you were describing, it was just, you know, would have been overwhelming had that been the case. The flip side of that, or the, the glass half full side of doing all those autopsies is, I think, probably better in the hospital setting where we could delve a little deeper, we had a little more time, we had more resources, we were able to, and a lot of hospital pathologists who did these autopsies were able to get the ball rolling on a lot of research on these decedents where, you know, the, the next of kin, the healthcare proxy, you know, allowed us to do, you know, kind of to do the autopsy and to use tissue for research to be able to learn about this disease. I think that, you know, that was a, a huge plus And I think had all of those individuals had to go to a medical examiner to have something done, the delay, and then the, you know, loss of, of being able to autopsy those patients would have put us further behind even scientifically. I totally agree with that. I think we would have been even further behind had not some states done that. These are not under the, should not be under the purveyance of the medical examiner's office, in my opinion. We are not equipped to, to do the proper research and studies that needed to be done in, in this kind of a case. A little bit reflecting on something Jonay said about the, the woman's body trying to go to Trinidad, foreign or U.S.-based patients, are there any documented disparity challenges with certification and, and COVID that you experience? Are there certain groups, either majority or minority, that were more or less likely to have an autopsy or be sent to the medical examiner, or were they more or less likely to be referred to a forensic pathologist you know, and what's being done to address any of those challenges now? Alex? Yeah. Throughout COVID, I've worked in both settings. I was a medical examiner in upstate New York from time to time, and then I was also based here in the hospital. Both responses were important, as we pointed out. A public health perspective, which may have been abused uh, initially, if you will, uh, and then the research-oriented hospital base. I think one thing that we, we've learned from it, for example, it kind of brings up this, this, I think, what is a problem with death certification in COVID-19. We have people that are found under suspicious circumstances. Uh, like I had a case of a man who lived in a horse track and he was found dead in the back of his little, uh, where he lived at the horse racetrack. That's a medical examiner jurisdiction. A man's found dead in a public place with access from anybody at any time. He had typical raging COVID uh, of the lungs. He had diffuse alveolar damage and he had pulmonary emboli to boot. This guy's a academic uh, textbook case of COVID-19. 
but it was appropriately a medical examiner investigation because he was how he was found, getting back to this idea of manner and circumstances. Confounding that picture is this man may have had a positive COVID test and then been hit on the head with a bat. And so you enter this realm of COVID-19 and death certification. Just because someone tests positive with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, does not mean they died from it. Right. Um, and I think this is probably going to stir up the pot now, but this is where <laughs> a big issue to address is how did we approach, as we learned about COVID-19, um, were we as pathologists understanding the implications for death certification? And more importantly, was that information being conveyed to our clinical colleagues who in many jurisdictions were signing out everybody as a COVID-19? And what is the role of autopsy? Um, you can autopsy everybody, but you do need to understand the disease and who's getting it to accurately certify deaths. I open it up to my colleagues. With that, I drop the hornet's nest. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well to do that at the, uh, as we're getting near the end. Perfect, perfect, perfect timing. Donate. You know, we did have, I, I think that Dr. Williamson brings up a great point because we did have homicides, people who are, you know, <laughs> They originally went to the hospital because they had sustained some kind of gunshot wound. And, you know, everyone now is tested in the hospital for COVID-19. Oh, they have COVID-19. So, you know, now it's like, okay, they didn't come into the hospital because of COVID-19, but incidentally they were. And these are, you know, 20, 30-year-old, otherwise healthy people. I do, you know, agree with, Dr. Williamson's point, I think, you know, this idea of just probably COVID-19 may not have been what was killing them, but somehow it, you know, gets into the mix and, and murkies the waters. There are a couple of people where family has called me and said, no, they didn't have any signs of COVID-19. And that appears, you know, like someone who goes in for a stroke because they lost consciousness. I agree that, you know, it's one of these things where Maybe they do have COVID by PCR, but, you know, it's not the thing that's killing them for sure, you know. And that was some of the problems we had when someone was being cared for in a hospital by clinicians who had access to them and their symptoms and what was really going on with them. And we are trying to read medical records and determine whether someone had symptoms from COVID, which is a lot more difficult than caring for that person. So I think that in many cases, we were not the right person to certify the death. And having said that, you know, just like Alex said, we had lots of cases where people had COVID, but it didn't make it to the death certificate because it had nothing to do with their death. Dr. Padera? Two things that are similar, I think, to what, what Janae and Wendy just mentioned. So that in the hospital setting, we also had a number of patients who uh, died with COVID, not died of COVID. And they died of, you know, straight up MI or ruptured gallbladder or hemorrhage. And it was a percentage of cases, but a relatively small percentage of our cases, I think. And so from the global numbers, it probably wouldn't, it wasn't going to change the message or the trajectory or, or the slope at all of what was, you know, being being reported certainly in the in the media, but there were these cases, you know, and then the other just anecdote going back to where we started with the podcast and the collaboration between forensic and, and hospital autopsies is that there were a number of patients that where the manner of death was either accident or kind of 
what ended up being kind of attempted suicide, they were COVID positive. The medical examiner took jurisdiction of those cases, but allowed us to do the anatomical dissection so that we could learn more. And that those were generally at the behest of the family saying, we would like, you know, we would like you to, you know, to, to do what you can to learn from, you know, they're so generous and in, in, as Alex was saying, kind of at the worst days of their life to grant us that really that opportunity. Um, so I think that again, in that spirit of working back and forth between forensics and in the hospital setting, there's a lot, a lot of good that that was done in you know, during the pandemic as well. Yeah, and thanks, Bobby. I think that's a, a, a good point for us to conclude on that, you know, the autopsy, you know, it's not a, a tool to generate statistics. It's not a tool for research. It's it's the final chapter in a patient's life. It gives closure to the family. It gives closure to the medical record, you know, for that patient. And I think that that's the only reason we do it, you know, ultimately is that so that the families and, and the patients are finally taken care of, as, as Alex referred to. And I think all the other things we do with it help, are helpful in the community, but ultimately, it's, you know, it is for the patient that we do that. So thank you again so much for sharing your stories with us. I think this has been fantastic, very eye-opening, and very helpful for our podcast listeners. I know you're all experienced, and it means a lot to us that you are willing to share your stories with us and our audience. I'll echo what Dan said. I think this was a really great, I, I know I learned a lot. Hopefully our listeners have as well. I want to remind our listeners to tell your colleagues about the podcast and you can subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And don't forget that if you want to receive a CME or CMLE credit for listening to the podcast, uh, look for Inside the Lab on the ASCP store or on our website, www.ascp.org. And we'll see you next time. Bye.